conquest, they just sell better than examples of good character. But that's ironic, right? Especially for those of us that value biblical knowledge. Because did you know, Mary is mentioned by name 12 times in the Gospel of Luke. She's mentioned five times by name in the Gospel of Matthew. She's mentioned in Mark by name. She's mentioned in Luke or in uh, John by name. She's mentioned in Acts by name. And there are various other stories and narratives that directly allude to her. And overall, Mary is actually the fourth most mentioned person in the New Testament. Now, following behind Jesus, of course, and uh, with Paul and Peter kind of tying there for second and third place, um, then it's Mary. But I think that to ignore Mary would be ignoring a very prominent New Testament figure. And I, I read this this week, and I thought this was kind of funny. It's been said that not knowing Mary would be like attending a dinner party without meeting the hostess. Could you imagine that? That would be awkward, to say the least. The bottom line is, she sets a very high bar for those of us who profess to follow Christ. We're not to worship her. She's not the divine. But Mary was blessed by God, and she was still in need of a Savior. I just think we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The biblical narrative of Mary portrays a remarkable woman by any human standards. She displays deep spiritual commitment, remarkable biblical insight, thoughtful personal reflection. Her passion and understanding and unwavering support of her son's messianic mission motivated her to make deep sacrifices in each stage of her life. And this is an example of Christian devotion unlike anything else that we see in the New Testament. She was great because she allowed God to use her. God called her to do something special, and she allowed God to do that. And like you and I, Mary was a descendant of Adam and Eve. And as we said, like you and I, she's also in need of a savior. And I think we can agree that it might just be well worth our time to just take a little bit of a look at her this morning and her perspective from the cross. So this morning, if you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me uh, to John chapter 19, we'll start in verse 23. That's John 19, verse 23. As Jesus was being crucified, the soldiers, the soldiers tore his outer garments into four pieces, one for each of them. They wanted to do the same with his tunic, but it was seamless. It was one piece of fabric that was woven from the top down. So the soldiers said to each other, don't tear it. Let's cast lots, and the winner will take the whole thing. This happened in keeping with the Hebrew scriptures, which said they divided my outer garments, and they cast lots for my clothes. These soldiers did exactly what was foretold in the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus' mother was standing next to his cross, along with her sisters. And Jesus looked to see his mother and the disciple that he loved standing nearby. Jesus said to his mother, Mary, Dear woman, this is your son, as he motioned to the beloved disciple John. And to John he said, This is now your mother. From that moment, the disciple treated her like his own mother and welcomed her into his house. And Jesus knew now that his work had been accomplished and the Hebrew scriptures were being fulfilled. We can just jump down to the bottom one more time. 
Let's look at that. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. I think that Mary realized probably day by day, revelation by revelation, that in accordance with what the angel had said, earlier at her conception of Jesus, she had indeed given birth to the living Son of God. I think it's similar with our faith too. Do you? We don't understand all at once who God is or what he's about and how that relates to us. Rather, it's over time and through experience that we get to understand more and more. However, Mary would have understood what the coming judgment meant for, God, for God's enemies um, but salvation and salvation for God's people. But she might have wondered at the implications of this. Just in her first century society, she might have thought that the Messiah's coming had to do more with uh, political salvation. Um, as we learned, uh, the oppression that Rome uh, was putting on Christ's followers at the time. Um, and she might have not fully understood the salvation of sin. But I do wonder, as Mary held Jesus, as he was growing up in his infancy and, and as a toddler, um, how many times did she hold him and just kind of wonder about how his future would transition? I wonder how many times that she wondered and pushed away thoughts of potential harm and pain that Jesus might experience, because you would have to push them away, right? Those thoughts are unimaginable, truly unimaginable to a mother. And any of us who have experienced loss and grief, we know how it messes with us, right? It comes upon us at very unexpected moments. And I think this is what we see. Um, we get a little bit of a closer glimpse when we read about Jesus uh, missing at the temple. Do you remember that story? Let's take a look at it. It's in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 51. Luke 2, 41 through 51. Every year during Jesus' childhood, his parents traveled to Jerusalem for Passover celebration. And when Jesus was 12, he made the journey with them. They spent several days there participating in the whole celebration. And when his parents left for home, Jesus stayed in Jerusalem. However, Mary and Joseph were not aware right? Because how old was Jesus at this time? Twelve. He's in middle school. What's important to a middle schooler? Their friends. Their friends are very important. So sure, Jesus is hanging out with his friends. It's no biggie. However, they assumed uh, after they had already traveled a full day's journey towards home, they began searching for him among their friends and relatives. They realized they hadn't seen him in a while. Where's Jesus? They're searching for him. No one had seen him. So Mary and Joseph rushed back to Jerusalem and searched for him. After three days of separation, just hold on. Most of us are parents in this room, right? Could you imagine your child missing for three days? For three days. I would be in a state. I would, I would be in a state. After three days of separation, they finally found him sitting among a group of religious teachers in the temple, 
asking them questions, listening to their answers. Everyone was surprised and impressed that a 12-year-old boy could have such deep understanding and could answer questions with such wisdom. His parents, of course, had a different reaction. Mary said to her son, why did you do this? Why have you treated us this way? Listen, your father and I have been sick with worry for the last three days, wondering where you were. We were looking everywhere for you. And Jesus said, why did you need to look for me? Didn't you know that I must be doing my father's work? And neither Mary nor Joseph really understood what he meant by that. Jesus went back to Nazareth with, with them and was obedient to them. But his mother, she continued to store these memories in her heart. Because that's how it is for moms, right? We tuck these memories and these moments into places so deep inside of us. It's a place that we didn't even know existed before we had children. It's a place we don't necessarily need a photograph or someone to recall the memory with us. We, we know it. We remember it. And those of us that are moms, we do reflect on that often. I, I reflect on my children's uh, infancy and childhood, and even, even um, before their birth, I remember um, very specific times I would literally just sit in this, this chair. That, at the time, it was in our teeny tiny little condo, uh, but now it's in our house, and, and we still have this chair. And I would sit cross-legged with my belly, and I would place my hands on my belly, and I would pray some very specific prayers over Teddy and over Lizzie. And then we had a bigger house, and I still prayed over Charlie and Brody. But uh, just very, very specific prayers that I am now getting to see fruition of. Things like, God, guide them in integrity and in character. Give them courage to stand up for what's right and stand against what's wrong. And that's just how it is for our moms. And, and it's just something that we don't know. None of us can know until or unless we're a mom. And I have to wonder, as Jesus was dying the most gruesome, torturous death with his mother right next to him, did she think back on these moments? Did she think back on her prayers for him, on her hopes? Because the bottom line is, Mary must have been experiencing the most torturous grief. And in this moment, this moment that we read about in John, she had to have been crying how could she not? No, 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 not my child, not my baby, not my boy, not the one that made me a mom. And so what happens? Jesus looks at his mother. He sees the raw pain that she's experiencing, and he speaks to that. He says, woman, behold your son as he motions to John, and he instructs John, this is your mom now, take care of her. Jesus was securing a solid future for his mother. However, I think it might go a little bit beyond that, but let's just take a look. So I'm sure you know, historically at this time, women didn't have rights. It was a patriarchal society, um, and Mary would not be able to make it on her own. Her husband had, had passed, it was just her and her children. Probably Jesus kind of provided for her in some ways. Um, but I think also the question begs to be asked, why John? Why John? 
Jesus had half-siblings. Why was it John? Well, if we really peel it apart, I think we can see that possibly the reason that Jesus left his mother in the care of John and not one of his siblings is probably because his siblings were not followers of God at the time, of him, of, of Christ as the Messiah. Um, later on, we see in James, or we see that James in uh, Galatians specifically, that he began to follow Christ after Jesus' death and resurrection. And we see in Jude, if you, if you read the book of Jude, his brother Jude also, um, identified him as the Messiah. Um, and even uh, 1 Corinthians 9, take a look at that. We can get a glimpse that probably some of his other siblings also attested that he was the Messiah, but this was after his death. So during this time, this moment on the cross, it was Jesus, it was his mom, and it was John. Who knows where the rest of his siblings were? Who knows where the other disciples were? They were not there with him present at the moment. So when Jesus hung on the cross, the man spiritually closest to him and to his mom was John. We read all throughout the Gospel of John that, that John is identified as the disciple that Jesus loved. And we can see here that the Lord valued spiritual relationship most. Jesus' entrusting act of his mother to John's care once again gives us insight into his deep love and concern for others. So even when he himself was in terrible agony, he saw the raw pain in his mother's eyes, and he saw the sword that pierced her soul. And he provided for her in great wisdom and insight and love by selecting the disciple that had always been the most loving of the whole group. In John 19, uh, that we started with, the verse prior uh, to what is happening is, of Jesus being crucified is uh, the soldiers are dividing his clothes. So they divided his outer garments into four pieces, one for each of them, and they wanted to do the same with his tunic. However, his tunic was seamless. It was a woven piece of fabric from the top down. This was a very expensive uh, garment. And um, so the soldiers, they didn't want to tear it. They said, let's cast lots. The winner gets the whole thing. So here's a question I want us to think about. Where did Jesus get such a luxurious and an expensive article of clothing? Probably from his mom. Probably from his mom. Um, when uh, my first two kids were babies, I had this little hobby of making baby clothes for them. Um, and uh, I even, I, downstairs in our, our basement, I came across a dress that I was sewing for Lizzie, and she outgrew it before I could finish sewing it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that much of a seamstress. I just have aspirations. Um, and then my other two kids came along, and it, I gave it up altogether. Um, <laughs> but as Jason can tell you, um, clothing my family has always been very important to me. Um, when they were little, little, I used to choose, like, those really cute, matchy-matchy outfits, like, like there was everything matched and coordinated, and there was ruffles and, and all kinds of things. So um, if you know my children, you know that, that we've passed that phase. They no longer like to wear the cute little matchy-matchy outfits. But I still, I'm the one that makes sure that they have whatever clothing they need. But I also make sure that they have a little something extra. You know, whatever that is. Like uh, for one of the kids recently, it was simply pants that don't itch. Um, it's 
the latest jean trend or a special jacket or something. And the reason I do this, I have to do this, I choose to do this, is because it's a very tangible way for me to express my love to my children. And I think the same was true for Mary. I think that possibly this tunic was her way of expressing love for her child. And I think that was probably her breaking point when she saw the soldiers taking that tunic that she had put so much love and attention and care and sacrifice into. And Jesus knew. Jesus knew how that messed with her. And it was in that moment that he wanted to care for her and make sure that she was okay. Um, however, I think that it goes beyond simply the logistics of Jesus making sure that she is provided for and attended to. I think that this is Jesus also lovingly informing his mom that their relationship is changing. In this moment, they are transitioning from mother and son to sinner and savior. I think Jesus is lovingly informing his mom that she's completed her mission as his mother. And if we think about it, I think that that Mary was the one, the only one, that comforted Jesus as he entered the world and also as he left, as he left to return to the, the Father. She devoted herself to being there for him through birth, through death, and beyond. And now Mary is to receive Jesus, not, not as her son, but as her Savior. And I don't, I don't imagine that Mary would have been able to wrap her mind around all of this. She must have been in complete shock witnessing the death of her son. But after his death and that weekend, I have to imagine there were some quiet moments and her heart was probably stirring. And I wonder if she sat and reflected maybe of the words spoken to her by the angel trying to wrap her head around that there, there's there's probably a twofold thing going on like to witness and experience such tragedy and loss but to still hold on to hope even though it doesn't really make sense this past week um jesse and i went to a conference and i had uh, or we had the privilege of sitting before um, this man that i i deeply admire and respect he is so wise and kind, and I first met him several years ago. I was in, I was in kind of a dark place. I was, I was stressed, to say the least. As Chris says, I have a way of underestimating things sometimes. <laughs> um, but I, I went to him for some advice, and um, he, I, it was about a situation that I just, I truly felt powerless over. It was a situation that needed changing, and I, I just felt powerless. And so what he did was he spoke to my powerlessness. He called that out, and he acknowledged, yes, you are powerless. Um, and again, he did that uh, on Monday. He spoke to the uh, group that was listening to him, and he um, addressed our powerlessness because that's what it is. That's what it is. We, that's what we are. We think we have control of a situation, but it's never really up to us, is it? And, and I think sometimes we need these situations, and we need these reminders and perspectives to define our limitations, to experience vulnerability, no matter how uncomfortable that is, and to ultimately recognize our need for a savior.
So in this moment, Mary was powerless. She had no choice but to surrender to God. She accepted her need for a savior. And, and that was the other thing that my friend said. He, um, he says this thing where he says that life is a program of a million surrenders. We have the opportunity to surrender every day when we wake up. It's, it's every day, it's every moment of every hour that we get to choose to live surrendered. And although it might not be in the way we want or how we want it, our Savior shows up every time. Mary had seemingly lost everything on the night of Jesus' death. And this crowd who literally just last week proclaimed him as the Messiah is now demanding his crucifixion. Her husband is long since deceased. Her other sons were essentially rejecting God. She had to have been having a crisis of faith. And not to mention the profound grief that only a mother could identify with. But as we know, the story doesn't end there, right? After Jesus' death and burial, there was a resurrection. When the women who loved and followed Jesus, they went to the tomb and they saw that it was empty. And that giant stone that was placed in front of it was removed. And Jesus wasn't inside. Neither had his body been stolen. He was alive surprise, just as he said he would do. And Jesus spent the next 40 days teaching his family and friends and followers about God's kingdom and the things to come. And it's shortly thereafter that the church began. Here's where it gets really cool, y'all. Okay, let's look at Acts chapter 1, verse 14. This is so golden. All these things with one accord they were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. The church began. Mary didn't stop. She didn't give in to the depression that she deserved. She didn't curl up within herself. She kept her heart and she kept her hands open. She made a choice to live given. This is how Ann Voskamp puts it. This is what she says living given looks like. Oh, I love this. Live given. Because if we live with walls to block out pain, you'll block out all the love that's trying to get in. What every broken heart needs is to break down its self-protecting walls. What every broken heart needs is to be vulnerable enough to share its brokenness. You will see as much healing in your life as you let people see the brokenness in your life. You are as healable as you are vulnerable. What does that mean for us? What do you do? What do you do when you've lost everything? Because we've all been there, right? We've all had those moments where it just seems like everything has crashed in around us. I think we acknowledge our powerlessness. Maybe, maybe we can even find gratitude in those moments that we have no power, but we know the one who does. Maybe we can surrender to our God's loving and attentive care. And as we surrender, as we collapse into the grace and the mercy and the peace that sustains, we choose to live broken as we live given.
Let's pray.